Good morning. My name is Jason Cabra. I'm an elder here at Grace Chapel, and I'll be presenting the Word of God to you this morning. Sorry, no slides. I'm one behind in technology, according to Phil, so you'll just have a black screen. If you don't get the inside joke, watch uh, Phil's uh, sermon from last week. Second time up here, so if I'm a little jittery or profuse sweating, you guys get it. As I was listening to Phil last week, he highlighted the difficulties faced by individuals, families, the church, our society. There was and remains a lack of perceived and or actual government, cultural, economic stability. It surrounds us. The continued distancing and outright rejection of God and His commandments embraced by our so-called free society. There is war, threats of new and larger conflicts, and the recent elections and state proposals enacted into law may cause discouragement, anger, and frustration. We are bombarded, bombarded by the pain, suffering, and bleak picture of our world and our own community, Expen uh, exposed potentially 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. The church, including individual believers, may be ensnared or bogged down in these events or worldwide concerns. But as disciples of Christ, we must remember, focus, and dwell on our heavenly inheritance. We sang many of those lines out of Scripture this morning. They are a truth. In the second book that Paul writes to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, he explicitly writes, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, the inspired Word of God. Therefore, what we read is truth and factual, but also that comes along with is encouragement, hopefulness, joyful, fulfilling, and glorious out of the Word of God. God, through Jesus Christ, has provided the ultimate blessing to believers, a way of light in the darkness and a promise of eternal life in heaven. As we have heard over the last couple of weeks, we are unified in our Savior, in our hope, and God's promise to us. Let us take a moment to pray this morning. Heavenly Father, our God, as we gather here this morning, I ask that the Holy Spirit to be speaking to our hearts, our minds, and spirits. We will read your truth, and I request discernment for me and those listening to be changed in character and attitude as we draw closer to you. My desire and hope is to clearly illustrate your providence, sovereignty, and the completeness of your message. We are so thankful for your completed and perfect plan of Jesus dying on the cross as an atonement for our sins and being resurrected and that he sits next to your right side in heaven. This created a way of salvation for your children and having an eternity in heaven with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We will be spending some time this morning in the first epistle written by Peter, the same man who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, as we read through the Gospels, who uniquely makes errors, makes conversation with Jesus, is corrected, rebuked, 
But then this man who knew Jesus Christ became an apostle with a legitimate big A. And we have this epistle written later in his life. Peter is writing to believers, most likely Jew and Gentile believers, undergoing persecution through the existing polytheistic system at the time. And the system permeated everything, the government institution, pagan religious officials, and practitioners within the system. This is also reflected what we see very frequently that Paul encounters resistance from many of these same groups. Believers are experiencing traumatic events, an evil world set against them, but Peter reminds them of the ultimate inheritance, which is our focus here this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 1, his letter identifies its attendance audience as strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, living in various earthly locations, but these are not their true homes. Some also interpret this as Peter addressing all believers, not to focus on the physical, but the heavenly, as spoken through the words of God. Their focus should not be on the temporal. What are our current conditions? or whatever state it may be. This is not our true or permanent condition or realm, but only temporary for a short time. It is hard to fathom an eternity in heaven with our God, but the realization of believers is that that is our true home, a home which will remain secure and protected and in Jesus' glorious presence. Today, focusing on 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12, As we read, the heavenly inheritance believers are promised as fulfilled waiting to be executed. It is clearly and concisely described. And I'll start once again, 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those that have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into." So the first thing is, who provided this heavenly inheritance? In this short passage, starting with verse 3, Peter, Peter immediately identifies and calls out 
the righteous recognition of the originator of this gift of mercy and of grace, the blessing of mankind, this living hope, as we sang this morning, has been benevolently provided by God, the Father. Only God is worthy to be praised in this direct and simple truth. As it says, in his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope worthy of all praise. God has provided clemency, which is intertwined with compassion, forgiveness, and love, offering a means of the greatest gift, salvation, to a sinful man or woman. So next we inquire, what is this heavenly inheritance? I'd like to really illustrate the word begotten or born again. It holds significance, as this Greek word is only used twice in the entire New Testament, in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, and then later in verse 23. So we just read verse 3, but in verse 23 it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Each use is stressing thoroughly the changing of the human mind, that the believer lives a new new life and is conformed to the will of God referring to God's regeneration of the believer. This is implied supernaturally, divinely inspired, a new birth, not an earthly, human-inspired revelation or condition. The event of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection as a required condition is taking our sinful burdens to pay the ultimate price to commute our punishment of death. The act allowed the perfect justice of God to be carried out. Verse 4 explains that the significance of the gift of salvation to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Incorruptible in the secular Greek is used to describe something that was not ravaged by an invading army. All throughout this passage, there are terms Greek that would be used in a military verbiage. And there are many different things that, as we go through this morning, we'll we'll keep going back to like a military term, kept, guarded, protected, reserved. But using words as incorruptible and undefiled, it just emanates of purity, untainted, free from any corruption and decay, not perishable in any manner. This inheritance is enduring and will not disappear. This inheritance is eternally preserved and maintained, specifically designated to the believers and followers of Jesus Christ as we wait for this eternal redemption, either from our physical bodies of this world or the return of Jesus Christ to collect his children as written in 1 Thessalonians. This is the exact opposite of any earthly, worldly inheritance. I refer back to Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew is distinctly stating that the treasures of earth are temporary, fading, decaying. They will eventually disappear and have no value. The focus on our mortal limitation, situations, restrictions, and life on this earth are meaningless, and the focus of our hearts must be on the eternal. 
an eternal inheritance of heaven that is secure and sealed. No supernatural or physical power is taking this gift away from any believer. There are no means, sorry, this in no means relieves us of our responsibility to be obedient to God's commandments, the teachings of Jesus, and the instructions provided to believers throughout the Bible while on earth. But the dwelling, the attachment, the priorities of the temporal should not be our primary focus during this short, short time here. Our true home is in heaven. Next is, how will this heavenly inheritance be maintained? And Peter just continues on through this chapter explaining. In verse 5, it states, by the power of God. Power in English and in Greek have a range of inherent meanings. Power is attached to raw or raw human strength, supernatural strength, command of power, which we see evidently around our world, militarily, economically, emotionally, culturally, or the ability of one to close or direct influence another to complete a given task. God's power is quickly summarized in the omnis. Omnipotence, all-powerful, sovereign, not limited in any manner. Omniscience, all-knowledgeable. Everything that is there, he knows. How it works, he designed, he created, he knows how it's going to act, and how it will be fulfilled according to his will. Omnipresence, he is here actively, he was here since the beginning of what we know as time through the Bible, but anything before that, he was here. And we know he will be also here anything after this time, into the future forevermore. Power here is used of divine and miraculous power, considering acting over the minds of men. Believers, including me, are preserved by the power of God. This literal term, kept, once again has a military use as to guard and to prevent hostile invasion or to keep inhabitants of a besieged city from flight. The intended use here is to preserve the believer for fulfillment and achievement to God's will. The terminology used by Peter unmistakably provides illustration that the believer is eternally safe, secure, and nothing can remove the status. This wonderful promise, this is a wonderful promise, truly filled with and the Holy Spirit cannot be disqualified from the promise. We cannot be disqualified by our own actions. We are sealed. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 states, In him you have also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Believers, we are sealed. Do we understand? Do we know? If you are sealed, there is no doubt. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. From that point on, the spiritual mark has been set upon the believer. By this gift of God of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are authenticated. We are genuine. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking about how a shepherd knows his sheep. In chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. 
neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. This illustrative language of snacking, snatching or plucking a sheep, a believer of Jesus Christ, away from Jesus is impossible. And if that wasn't enough, we have the additional assurance, the additional security that the believer cannot be removed from the hand of God. This is what is written in the truth of the word that we believe. Assurance and reassurance directly from the word of God and as written in the word of God, the Holy Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. So next, how is this inheritance obtained? And once again, Peter continues to elucidate in this passage. It is written through faith for salvation, denoting a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah through whom we obtain eternal salvation into the kingdom of God. We are given this exact manner of how this inheritance is obtained. Peter informs the designated epistle recipients, the people that are reading this message, as strangers or pilgrims, but another translation is God's chosen people, as we, are, as, we, as we briefly discussed earlier. And I go back up to verse 2 of the same First uh, Peter chapter 1. It talks about the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. These strangers... Pilgrims, believers, the elect, chosen by God. How we ask, and it gives us this distinct answer of the foreknowledge, God's absolute determination of events. This is not an awareness or an observation of what is going to happen. This is according to the infinite and predetermined conclusion of the will of God. So I ask a question. Can a sinful, destitute, evil mortal creature generate, produce, create, innovate, or divine his or her own path to salvation? Not a rhetorical question. The answer is no. And as it is written over and over throughout the New Testament, and as we have read today, the purification of the heart and the life is through the Holy Spirit. Holy, set apart, different from this world, removed from the ignorance of sin and iniquity. The mandated obedience, absolute obedience of one conformed by God to his commands, his genuine salvation. Salvation changes us. It changes our character. It changes our conduct. It changes our viewpoint. As sanctification in motion, in progress, the heart, mind, and spirit of the believer are changed. As humans in this world, we know that perfection can never be reached, as Jesus Christ was the only perfect living human example that has walked this earth. But that does not mean that our walk toward drawing closer to God in holiness must be manifest, revealed, by and through the Holy Spirit that indwells the believer. Being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ with this salvation and obedience, we have received grace. A.W. Tozer is quoted in saying, 
Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. And then we have peace. Peace as tranquility, absence of conflict, the utter satisfaction and fulfillment by the Holy Spirit in all. These are not mere fanciful or flippant ideas or states of existence, but Peter is expressing the affirmation of salvation and the fulfillment of God's promise to believers. That's a hard one to swallow in our society today. How does Peter inform his readers on how to act and conduct themselves knowing of the ultimate inheritance as believers? Many times we think happiness, thankfulness, but he specifically states to greatly rejoice. There is a difference. To be exceedingly full of joy, driven by certainty and assurance of our salvation in eternity in heaven. Also in verse 6, the divine influence is active and to be experienced and lived during trials. These trials, as indicated, include temptations, adversity, affliction, sent by God and serving to test and prove faith, holiness, and develop spiritual character. James chapter 1 also includes some clarification into this spiritual development of all believers. My brethren, count on it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. We see God has a driven, purposeful plan for believers to be refined, to increase reliance on the provisions of God. I'll use a personal example. As everyone knows, we are seeking God's will and finding a new senior pastor here at Grace Chapel. I know I took the grant, granted the work, the blood, sweat, and tears that our former pastor poured into the preparation of Bible study, of sermons, investing in people's lives, shepherding spiritual development, focusing on the growth of the kingdom of God, administrative tasks, and more than likely a million other things. I know that I am not the only one during this challenging time continuing, notice present tense, and will continue, notice future tense, to increase reliance on the provisions of God. It is a continual, active process. But this increased reliance on the provisions of God is not only centered on me or my family, but it is for church leadership. It is for church employees. It is for members and attendees in the congregation of this church. For you. God is molding believers according to his will, for his glory. But we directly benefit in the spiritual growth and walk. It is not for our glory, it is not for our accomplishments, but for his. 
Believers here at Grace Chapel are being tasked as never before. Believers are in ministries where they never thought they would be involved, leading ministries that they never thought they would lead, functioning and being challenged, but at the same time growing, accomplishing, relying, and continuing to do God's will in obedience and in love. This is an example of active active spiritual refinement. The refinement is specifically addressed in verse 7 where it says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. So I'm going to sidestep quick science lesson time. Gold is mined from the earth. It is an ore. It is impure. It does not come out all nice and yellow or in this case white gold like a precious wedding ring or a shiny jewelry. It is full of impurities, other minerals, and elements. The ancient processes include using fire, which involves the application of great amount of heat, approximately 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. When this intense heat is applied to the gold ore, the gold and other minerals will melt, becoming a liquid. The impurities will float to the surface of the liquid mixture, and the liquid underneath remains pure. It is the oldest method of refinement and was actively in use during the New Testament time period. So when Peter writes about this, people are familiar with this impurity and changing it to a higher level of purity. Now we have come full circle with this metaphor used by Peter for similar application to the life and challenges of believers. Peter indicates that the readers of his letter had not personally seen Jesus or his miracles. They had not directly heard his words and teaching, but remained genuine in their faith. There are recurrent discussions by the apostles emphasizing the firsthand experiences in the New Testament and their unified teachings and writings. This point of personal connection was not attainable for new believers at this time. They couldn't get on a boat or walk to Israel and speak to Jesus, listen to his teachings, because this is all after his ascension to heaven. And what did Jesus leave behind but the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers? These personal experiences by the apostles validated their words as false teachers and false prophets were an indicative problem even in the early church. Yep, even imagine in the first 30 to 60 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven and false teachers and false prophets are already making their way into the church. We read about this over and over in the New Testament, and I don't think anything has changed in 2,000 years. John writes in his first epistle, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. The physical fellowship the apostles had with Jesus was no longer available, but through the Holy Spirit, a supernatural connection was available to the apostles, to Jesus Christ, which thankfully and miraculously is also available to others after becoming believers. The apostles' authority was indisputable. 
returning back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter writes that these believers, without having seen Jesus, were inheriting the promise and rejoice with joy inexpressible. Really key, joy inexpressible. This translation of the Greek, inexpressible, is only used one time in the entire New Testament. Joy inexpressible, that the joy is so moving, so powerful, words are inadequate, unspeakable, impossible to communicate. There are two similar situations that I observed which may relay a portion of the potency of the specific word. If any of you have any military and have ever welcomed them home, uh, one kind of, uh, I'll say, picture I have is that families and friends are waiting on a Navy pier. There are large ships moored on either side. The mammoth gray superstructures are towering over everyone. That special sailor is returning home after being absent from family dinners, birthdays, anniversaries, even simple actions as just sitting on the couch at home. Family and friends have been separated for up to six months, a year, a year and a half, but they are finally reunited. And what you see is that there are tears, there are bear hugs, there are kisses, people breaking down because they love the people that they are being reconnected with. But strangely, many times, there are few to no words being exchanged. It's just an intense desire for people to have that tangible, physical connection with the returning spouse or loved one. Similarly, if you've ever been to an airport and people being flown back in on airplanes, you will see very similar when people come off the airplanes and their families are waiting for them. You know, men that have never seen their firstborn child. It is powerful. But they are just longing, grasping that physical presence, love, and connection displayed. These are illustrations of part of a human and an emotional inexpressible joy. These are powerful moments etched into these individuals' minds. It's etched into mine as just an observer. The fulfillment of this moment has been completed with great anticipation, but these are bound in the human condition. As believers, we are overwhelmed with expressible joy because our salvation has been made known to us. Once again, we are sealed. We are secure. This is divinely inspired condition. We have delight, and we are glad, and we are thankful and joyful for our soul's escape from the curse of sin and an eternity of hell, the relief of our own sinful burdens, and full of anticipation of the day we can truly give our Savior the praise, glory, and honor he deserves in heaven. Believers will obtain the promised blessing at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This should impact our outlook day to day. So we have what was what we have in the Bible today is what was written by the apostles or um, Paul, also an apostle. But also we have in this section in First uh, Peter is that also there are people in the Old Testament, prophets that were searching and, and inquiring about the foretelling of the kingdom deeds and death of the Messiah. The revelation was not made manifest or discerned until Jesus began to fulfill prophecies one by one by one. 
the glories that Jesus was of a divine nature prior to physically arriving on earth at his, bed, at his birth and his return to a divine nature with his return to heaven, his ascension. The testimony of the misfortune and affliction the Savior would endure was prophesied. The divine information originating from God and imparted and provided unto inspired men. There are various Old Testament prophets who wrote that the God-given prophecies and they were awaiting revelation or fulfillment with a hope that most would not see, but their trust in God remains solid. And we see that over and over. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 provides some additional clarification. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. It began with God, it ends with God. As we wrap up this morning, the believers of Jesus Christ in this room and around the world are the divine inheritors of salvation and the promise of heaven for eternity. Please do not let the problems that we see, the temptations that we endure, the temptations that we fall into sin, the events of the world to distract us from the assurances God has promised his children. The living word of God provides sanity, direction, assurance, wonderful examples, encouragement, and so many other joyful truths. This is our truth. We need to read it, dwell on it, and pray on it. So we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this brief time this morning. We are so thankful of receiving such a precious and glorious gift. The continuous removal of sin while we are on this earth, the salvation from an eternal death, in eternity and perfect heaven, free from sin and iniquity. It is hard to fathom your grace and mercy that you have provided, but I am assured, and others are also, through your Holy Spirit and the Word of God, that this guarantee is active. May we daily focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen.